The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello and welcome to CPR Unplugged. Today I am joined by Will Humble, the Executive Director of Arizona Public Health Association. Hi Will, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Nice to be here. It's great having you. For people who are unfamiliar with that title, give us an idea, what does that position entail? Yeah, so we're a membership organization of public health professionals from all kinds of different disciplines. So, you know, we have folks that work in managed care organizations. Uh, We have uh, folks who work at the state Medicaid agency, the state uh, health department. A lot of folks, a lot of our members work at county health departments. A lot of our members are from academia and uh, many of our members are students. So we have about 800 members of our organization and our primary objective is really to inform better public health policy with a focus on on making sure that uh, we're highlighting evidence and evidence-based practice and interventions. So that's like the core mission that we have, but we also work on professional development and networking opportunities and so forth. But I think if you ask most of our members why they join, it's because they feel like they can get a voice in health policy through the organization. And a lot of them work for ultimately elected or appointed officials. And in some ways that can stifle your ability to express your opinion because you work for somebody who's a politician and they don't want you to say something that they might not agree with. So a lot of our members join for that reason. And I do like a a policy update every week that goes out on Sunday mornings to just highlight the, like what's happening in the state or nation, you know, a lot of what I do these days is of course around COVID, but also to provide some perspective, for example, about the Affordable Care Act hearing that was at the Supreme Court last Tuesday. So uh, some of our members are lawyers that are also interested in public health. And they gave us sort of a rundown on what they learned from the hearing, the kind of questions that the justice has asked, et cetera. So uh, that's kind of who we are. And we try to influence policy mostly at the state level, but also at the federal level. And the two areas that we focus are what I call legislative advocacy. That's during legislative session, trying to influence uh, the legislature into making uh, better decisions and then administrative advocacy. And that's really like uh, trying to influence say the Arizona department of health services or access a state Medicaid agency to, 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 to make administrative decisions that are good for public health. I can imagine that it has been a busy year for you then. <laughs> oh yeah. It's, it's been a really busy year. But it's also been a very dynamic year in that, you know, we've we've got I mean, we've gained uh, probably 150 new members in the last since March uh, because of our increased visibility, the advocacy that we're doing, especially the administrative advocacy, urging the governor and health director to make certain decisions that are evidence based. And so because we've gotten some traction with journalists in town and in the state, that's improved our profile. It's been super busy. And the other thing is I'm the only employee. So this is a one person operation and I have, you know, I'm responsible for the finances and the books, the, you know, the counting I shop out to somebody because you have to have checks and balances. 
you know, I do the policy updates. I update the website. When new members come in, I update. So it's a lot of uh, administrative work in addition to just the, what you see on the outside, which is the advocacy part. Mm -hmm. So you wear a lot of hats and it sounds like you've got a really good balance of different professionals from different perspectives, um, providing some input that must give you guys a unique perspective on different aspects of mental health and public health right now. Yeah, no, for sure. Because we are so diverse, uh, we have a lot of uh, different backgrounds, but quite honestly, when it comes to making decisions about setting advocacy priorities, we're pretty well a consensus-based organization. The one exception to that was Arizona's Proposition 207, which was that that was the voter initiative that was just approved by the voters like 10 days ago that will set up a retail uh, marijuana system and convert uh, you know, basically, so retail marijuana and decriminalization, uh, legalization of small of possession of small amounts. We had members that felt like that, you know, is going to do more harm than good because it increases access to adolescence. Ultimately, even though you're supposed to be 21 in order to be able to go into one of those stores, but many of our members, including me, this is what uh, this is what influenced me the most is that many of our members felt like, look. This is our opportunity for criminal justice reform of marijuana possession laws, which I think all of our members agree are doing the current laws, well, before 207 passed, do more harm than good because it really has an impact on the social determinants of health of low-income people, especially people of color. So that was a hard one, you know, because Mm -hmm. there's uh, evidence on both sides. And that was an example of one of the few times when our members are split. Mm -hmm. Well, and even in the mental health community, there's a lot of different opinions about the therapeutic properties of medical marijuana and kind of how to balance that in a therapeutic setting. What were you finding as you reviewed the research on the topic? So fortunately, we're not the first state. (laughs) So that's good um, because you can learn from what happened in other states. You don't have, when, when you're not first, you can learn. So uh, obviously, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and California had gone before Arizona to a retail marijuana system. And so, and it had been a few years, actually. So uh, one of the things that we did was uh, ask our series of interns to do an evidence review of the literature in those other states to see what their experiences had been. And so, uh, so we had a cohort of six students, uh, masters and graduate level students from AT Steel University and a few other groups of students do some research work, which we put up on our website and ask them to, you know, to, to display the evidence, show, show the evidence and things from the benefits of the criminal justice reform pieces, but also the, you know, what does the evidence show in terms of increased adolescent use in those states that transitioned to a retail marijuana law? And that's a good example of what we try to do, which is to use evidence to help inform our advocacy and our members. Uh, And in the end, uh, you know, we never did take a position on Prop 207, the Retail Marijuana Initiative, because of the fact that there's evidence on both sides and it wasn't, you know, most, most public health policy is overwhelmingly beneficial on one side and maybe a few drawbacks on another. But this one, uh, this one was kind of split. 
Um, the thing that drove me to vote yes on that personally was that in those other, well, in Washington, Oregon, and Colorado, if you look at adolescent use pre and post retail marijuana, legal, legalizing re, retail marijuana, you don't see an increase in adolescent use of marijuana. Interestingly, you would, I mean, intuitively, you would expect that to happen, but at least the data from Washington, Oregon, and Colorado suggests that that's not the case. So because adolescent use to me was the biggest downside on it, um, and it showed, in fact, at least in those few years in those states that it didn't go up. For me, I felt compelled, like, look, let's go ahead and, and get criminal justice reform done because this may be our only opportunity in the next few years. And so, yes, I might be wrong about that adolescent use and we, it may go up in Arizona, uh, in which case that would be a bad thing. On the other hand, we know that we're going to have benefits from adjustments to the criminal justice laws when it comes to possession of small amounts of, mar of marijuana. Shifting gears a little bit, talking about um, what you had mentioned, the Affordable Care Act is getting a lot of uh, headway in the news lately because of the Supreme Court case. What have you seen as far as the potential benefits and consequences of the Affordable Care Act one way or the other, whether it sticks around or it's... it's Well, I'll talk about the short term and then I'll, the real long game part of it, because I think there's two different aspects to it. Obviously, I think the Affordable Care Act has probably been one of the most important public health policy um, interventions of the last 20 years. Um, it has substantially improved people's access to care. It expanded Medicaid in states that have taken that option, which has a big impact on helping to alleviate health disparities in low-income people. Um, it's provided people with pre-existing conditions to be able to uh, buy affordable health insurance and not be penalized for that pre-existing medical condition. Um, it, it, it allows people to purchase uh, health insurance with subsidies through the marketplace, which gives people new options career-wise, because used to be you were tied to your job and you couldn't leave because you couldn't get health insurance anywhere else. And now the Affordable Care Act li lets people become consultants, let's say, and give it a try and get marketplace insurance which that option was, wasn't available. And there's a host of other things that people don't even know about, like uh, not many people know about, like why do the restaurants now have labels for the calories? That didn't just happen. That's in the Affordable Care Act. So, uh, so there's all kinds of things that have been beneficial about the ACA. And if, if the Supreme Court were to hold that the ACA is no longer constitutional because the, uh, the tax penalty is no longer in effect that was eliminated in 2017 by Congress. And, and, and if they believe that as a result, it's not severable from the rest of the act, then we could lose the entire Affordable Care Act. Uh, after listening, well, I didn't listen to the justices, but the people I trust that did listen uh, said, the questions that the justices were asking, including the conservative, some of the conservative ones, suggested to them that they are skeptical of the, un, the lower court ruling and that, that in fact, they're, they are inclined to uphold the ACA again, for this would be for the third time, uh, just by reading the tea leaves of the questions that, for example, Justice uh, Roberts and interestingly Kavanaugh uh, were asking uh, in court last week. Uh, that was on the 10th of November. 
So, um, so we'll see. I think it would be catastrophic public health wise if the ACA were to go away. And I think it would be catastrophic politically for the right if that were to happen. Because it's one thing to, you know, to hear that the Affordable Care Act is going to go away, but it's a very different thing to actually have it go away and have people not be able to keep their kids on their insurance until 26, have to pay three, five, 10 times as much or not be able to get insurance because you have a pre-existing condition to lose the Medicaid expansion provision of the, of the law. So those are very real things. And, and there's an interesting phenomena, I think, in psychology, which is that if it, that it's a lot harder to take something away from somebody when they have it than it is to never give it to them in the first place. Mm-hmm, because because humans feel loss far more uh, acutely than they feel missed opportunities. And so I, that's why I, I'm talking about the long game now. I think it would be if, if, to be honest with you, I think that the future of the right is held within those justices, because if they strike the ACA, the consequences for the right are going to be profound because mm-hmm. people will be saying, fix it. And how are they going to fix it? Because they've staked out a position that they have no interest in fixing it. So that's how you get to, if, the, if here's what I think would happen. If the court strikes it down, I think in two years, uh, we would see a change in Congress, maybe dramatic. And that's how you get to a Bernie Sanders type of plan. I mean, the, the way you get to Medicare for all is by creating a crisis within the system and, and having to find a new solution to the problem. So ironically, I think people on the right who would like to get rid of the ACA are thinking short term because they would create a crisis that would create the opportunity for the people that they fear the most the redistributionists. That's a good point. Yeah. Narrowing our perspective a bit, there's also been some talk about COVID being considered a pre-existing condition and what the consequences might be if the ACA was not available to cover that condition specifically. How do you feel kind of going backwards and working our way forwards? How do you feel COVID has been managed so far in Arizona? Well, I have to say it's a tale of of two semesters. (laughs) I think the pandemic was handled actually quite well from the very in Arizona from the beginning until about May 3rd. May 3rd was the inflection point where I started to see decisions really start to go downhill. And I'll start with uh, where I think the biggest mistake was, which is uh, ending the stay at home order on May 15th, not the date, but how it was ended. So we had a successful stay-at-home order. It lasted until May 15th. But then when we emerged, which I have no problem with ending the stay-at-home order on the 15th, but when we emerged to the backside, we went to the honor system and bars, restaurants, nightclubs, and those types of businesses were encouraged to follow CDC mitigation measures, but there was no requirements and no compliance, nor enforcement, nor penalties. And so we saw behaviors of bars, restaurants, and nightclubs just say, hey, I mean, there were downtown Scottsdale nightclubs that was, it was free champagne on the 15th at night, you know, um, it was like Mardi Gras and it went on like that for weeks. 
And so, so that I think was the critical mistake in May was leaving the stay at home order without compliance and enforcement expectations of the mitigation measures, along with the fact that when we emerged on May 15th, the, 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 not only was there no statewide face covering mandate, but in fact, up all the way up until June 17th, local jurisdictions were prohibited from implementing their own mask mandate at the local or county level. Huge mistake, as we experienced in July, where we actually got so bad that the state had to authorize what's called crisis standards of care, which is essentially a triage protocol to decide who gets scarce resources when there's not medical resources and healthcare resources when there's not enough resources to treat everybody. You know, like essentially grading people with their likelihood of of uh, survival and and rationing care to those people most likely to benefit. Now, fortunately, that was limited in terms of its application. But I think anybody who works in a hospital who would be able to speak with candor and, and anonymity would tell you that you do not get the same level of care when you're over capacity than you do when you're not. Now, they're not going to say that out loud, you know, because it has tort liability implications and their employer won't want them to say that. But if you got them privately, I think they would all concede that the level of care declines as you approach a capacity within your system. So I think, so that's going to your, I know it's a long answer to your question, but things went well, I think, up until the beginning of May and then went quite poorly after that. I will say there was some redemption that happened at the end of June when the governor at least allowed cities and counties to put in face covering ordinances, uh, which they did within 36 to 48 hours. Most uh, jurisdictions had uh, one form or another. It's not uniform, so it's different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but it was a start. And then um, a week later, he recognized that the bars are really a problem and they were shut for several weeks, which, and, and, and restaurants were asked to go to 50% capacity as well. And, and you could see that those, that combination of interventions made a huge difference. And by the end of August, we were back in okay shape and, and benefited really in September and the first part of October with, uh, you know, a hospital system that's not in crisis, a manageable number of cases that can actually be followed up on with contact tracing and so forth. Uh, sadly, uh, you know, we're now on an exponential growth curve as we speak, and we're facing Memorial Day on steroids. I mean, our big turning point over the summer was what happened on Memorial Day. And now we got Thanksgiving coming up, which is far more dangerous than Memorial Day. So I'm pretty concerned about the kind of uh, spread that we might see after these Thanksgiving get-togethers finish, and the incubation period's about a week to ten days. So we're talking early December. If Thanksgiving as is turns out to be as problematic as I think it's going to be. So with the resurgence in cases, we definitely know more about COVID and how to uh, protect from it, prevent the spread than we did in you know March and April there's a lot of misunderstanding or confusion about this resurgence in cases. What does the research show are contributing factors for that? Yeah, good and important point. So what we have learned is that this virus loves to, number one, 
that this virus is prone to super spreading type events, which is different from influenza. Influenza is more of a sporadic spreader. You don't see one person infecting 150 people with influenza. It's usually close contacts, family members, roommates, coworkers, that kind of exposure. Uh, what we see with COVID-19 and the SARS-CoV-2 virus is that it's prone to this super spreading type of behavior. And we now know that the place where that really happens the most is in closed indoor environments with mediocre ventilation where people don't wear masks and quite honestly, where alcohol is involved. So what are we talking about? We're talking about bars, restaurants, and nightclubs. And the evidence is mounting daily that those are the key environments. And so if you remember back at the stay-at-home order back in April, if in April we knew what we know now, we would be able to be far more targeted about that stay-at-home order and just shut bars, restaurants, and nightclubs and put in a statewide face-covering mandate. But instead, we didn't know that stuff. And so it was a much more broad-based stay-at-home order that shut nail salons and gyms and any business that wasn't you know, massage places, any, any business that wasn't deemed to be essential uh, you know, was suspended during that stay-at-home order back in April. And I think now we know enough that it could have been a lot more targeted, but that comes with, that's the, that's part of the learning curve, you know? What is it about certain environments? Like when we think about a gym, we think about people are moving from different pieces of equipment. There's a higher level of respiration as you're working out. How does that not end up being a super spreader environment? Well, it does spread, but not to the extent of bars, restaurants, and nightclubs. And there was a research article published last week in the journal Nature, very reputable, one of the most reputable, I think, um, journals that there is, that compared uh, the environments and, and ranked them against each other. And if you look at that graph in terms of, you know, what is the most, what's the environment that amplifies this virus the most? Off the charts, it was restaurants and bars. Um, gyms still do, but it was four times less than restaurants and bars, uh, but still higher than say a retail grocery store. So, um, so I think that the ingredient is follows is that in a gym, you can uh, require people to wear masks. And I do go to a gym where the vast majority, there's a few people with face shields, but mostly people are wearing masks while they're lifting weights or even on the treadmills and stuff. So you can, you can get good, decent compliance with face coverings and you can do distancing and it's not that much of a social event mm. um, and they're not drinking alcohol. So it's this combination of human behaviors that make, I think, gyms less risky than bars, restaurants, and nightclubs. So you look and, and the length of stay. So typically the length of stay in a gym is a little bit over an hour, whereas you go to a bar or restaurant and it's usually a lot more than that. And you're not wearing a mask. And there's, you're sitting closer to each other and you're not moving around. And so I think it's those, the, that series of differences that makes uh, bars, restaurants, and nightclubs uh, more prolific at, at than say grocery stores and, and others. But still, spread can happen in any of those environments. It's just that it happens a lot easier in those environments. And I, and I haven't talked about alcohol yet, which is what changes people's inhibitions. And pretty soon you can, they forgot there was a pandemic at all. You know? And, and, and for, in some of those, especially nightclubs, people might be there for four or five hours. 
you know, a gym, mm-hmm. it's shorter term, wearing a mask, less crowding, less social, and we got a mask on. So I think there's the, those are the differences between the different environments. Same with the grocery store. I mean, you go in and pick up a few things in a, a, a few, or even a full basket. You're going to wander around the store. You get a checkout and leave. You might have been there 40 minutes, let's say, uh, but you're moving around. You're not in big groups. So uh, it's just, a, it's, it's, I think we've learned a lot about where this virus really amplifies and it's those environments with alcohol where people don't wear masks and it's indoors. Is that one of the reasons that we're seeing schools kind of going back and forth between being open and, and shutting down again? Well, I felt from the beginning, and I'll just be honest with you, I felt from the beginning that the, whether schools could stay in in-person instruction would end up having a lot to do with how good the compliance and enforcement checks are at bars, restaurants, and nightclubs. I mean, in essence, you could say the policies that were implemented in the state were, were in essence, a choice. Sadly, I think that the compliance and enforcement in those bars, restaurants, and nightclubs could be a lot, lot better. And if it had been better, not just a complaint, because right now they have a complaint-based system and you can file a complaint, but there's no proactive like workforce that's going out checking these things. And that workforce is available. I mean, it's the food safety people where I started my career in the 80s. I was a restaurant inspector and they that's the workforce that should be repurposed for the next three or four months to focusing not on food safety, uh, but rather on COVID uh, compliance and give them some additional authority to put food establishment licenses at risk for not following mitigation measures. But that, that's, it, that never did happen. And I think that's in part what you now see is that schools are beginning to have to drop in-person instruction and go to distance learning mm-hmm. uh, in part because the, the compliance wasn't robust and enforcement wasn't robust at bars, restaurants, and nightclubs. When we look at the population too, like you said, individuals that are intoxicated and then at schools, kids and teens, it's it's much more difficult to effectively enforce those types of, of ground rules and boundaries. Well, one of the things that I was talking to some county health department folks over the weekend and what they have seen is that they're seeing far more spread in the high schools than they see in the middle or elementary schools. I think they think they believe that a lot of that has to do with after hours socialization and some of the sport competitive sports programs. Uh, And for that reason, I think while most districts are thinking about K-12 as K-12, I think that they ought to be thinking of it as, you know, K-8 and 9-12 and making different decisions. I, I could totally see a governing board saying, look, for two reasons, we're going to keep we're going to go to distance learning in high schools. Number one, that's where we see the amplification of the virus. Number two, high schoolers are generally better able to benefit from distance learning. Whereas a third grader is less, I mean, let's think about that. How are they going to benefit? It's hard for them to benefit from distance learning. And, and you see fewer cases being spread in that population. So I think um, in retrospect, when all this is said and done, the lessons learned and might end up being don't look at your K-12 system 
together, but think of it as segments, elementary, middle, and high school. The unique needs of each population. And risks. Yeah, absolutely. And benefits. Risk benefit. I mean, that's life. Risk benefit. All the decisions we make in life are really are around that. When we talk about the behavioral component, um, we're hearing a lot more about psychological fatigue and what people are referring to as COVID burnout. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, on people kind of getting a little more lax and just having a difficult time keeping up? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's different for different people. I don't have any hard and fast solutions. I know from like my experiences through this, the people that it's been hardest on are my parents. They're both about 86 and they used to be really active in their church. And so they had their social connectedness through there. And my mom was, yes, she helped as a volunteer with ESL kids, kids learning a second language at one of the middle schools here. And, and her book club would meet in person and talk about books. And so for people like that, that don't have jobs, like I have a job and it's been a busy and my wife has a job and, you know, my kids are all out and they have distance jobs. So for some people, this hasn't been that challenging, but for others, like my parents, it's been really hard because they don't have employment as a diversion, you know, they've lost their social connectedness and, and it can be really challenging. And it's, and I mean, I think it's, it's hitting different families in different ways. There are people who are forced to go into unsafe environments and work may have, you know, medical conditions that put them at higher risk. I know there's a lot of people that lost their jobs, which made them fall behind on their rent payments, which puts them at risk for eviction. And, may or may not have become employed again. There's no way to support yourself on what we have in terms of unemployment insurance in our state. So big, big, big challenges for many families, not just because of what the virus does, but because the interventions themselves, especially during the stay-at-home order, have had a profound economic impact. And those are real. It's kind of that integrated model of looking at all the different social determinants of health and how that's affecting everybody's capacity to cope right now. Yeah. So what are you doing? Have, what have you noticed yourself, your family, self-care, coping? It, I mean, it's, it's different for different family members. So for me, personally, I mean, I've been super busy at work, that part of it. One of my kids has some disabilities. He has Down syndrome. And so he uh, really loves his day program, but he wasn't able to go to that during the summer. And so he would watch it on Zoom, which, and he was glued to it, but you could see I mean, it's not the same. It's not the social interaction that you get. So, but he rolls with the punches, you know, so <laughs> I didn't see anything off about him. It's just that I hate to see him miss out on the, the day program opportunities for that kind of socialization. I talked about my parents. Um, I think it's been hardest on them and our family just because of this isolation that comes with, um, with this whole thing. And, uh, you know, my wife's, parents are in a skilled nursing facility in Iowa and that has really been hard because they're they can't get visited I mean there's no visitation mm -hmm. so um they're just they, if you think about that this is near your end of your life not totally but getting there and yet and you have this pandemic where your family members can't visit you and you know 
FaceTime doesn't cut it. It's not mm-hmm. the same. So, uh, so I really, I think perhaps of all of our family members, it's been hardest, like on my wife and her parents, because of the situation of being in skilled nursing without visitation opportunities, really. There was a time when there was, you could go outside and do visitation in the shade. Uh, it was outside, but not inside, but it was really limited. Uh, but that's, those are some examples of the different ways that this pandemic has affected different people. Some people, uh, not so much, other people's profoundly. Mm-hmm. Based on your experience with everything going on right now, with the research that you've seen and the colleagues that you have collaborated with, what would be some general advice for the um, Arizona public? Just if you could just think of this as the fourth quarter of a football game, stick with it for the fourth quarter because the vaccines are coming. It's, I mean, it's super encouraging to see a, there's 11 vaccines in state phase three trials. That's the final phase uh, where you're testing safety and efficacy. Uh, the Pfizer vaccine is, uh, I haven't published the data yet, but they suggest that it's 90% effective at preventing uh, infection with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Moderna just came out with their estimate, again, unpublished data at 94.5%. So, and, and both, both of these uh, companies have stated that they had very few, if any, uh, uh, adverse events, complications. So that, and that's just two of the vaccines. There's nine more in trial. So, uh, you know, the vaccines are on the way um, and it will be only a matter probably of weeks, maybe as at the most two months, but I think it'll be less than two months where the initial people will be able to get vaccinated. For example, the staff at assisted living and skilled nursing facilities, residents of skilled nursing, ICU trained nurses, um, and then rolling down towards older people with chronic medical conditions, older people generally. And then finally, the next stage hopefully would be people with disabilities who, you know, uh, who, you know, uh, who are at at higher risk, et cetera. Um, At the end of the line will be people in their twenties and thirties. Because the the idea is to get, to protect the people most vulnerable for. So uh, my piece of advice is, you know, hang in there. It's been really hard. I know. Um, but if, but if we give up now, we're going to lose lives unnecessarily. And, and there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's really encouraging. I mean, mm-hmm. these, both of these new vaccines, the Moderna and the uh, Pfizer vaccines are a new technology called messenger RNA, where uh, it triggers an immune response by encouraging your body to manufacture the antigen. So it's not even so you, like the influenza viruses and some of these other vaccines are either killed or inactivated viruses that have the antigen on them. These are, this is messenger RNA is all it is. So um, uh, I'm really encouraged by, uh, you know, by the initial, at least what these two companies are saying. Again, we haven't seen the phase three data yet, but, uh, and there's 11, there's nine more. Mm-hmm. In the pipeline, and 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 the vaccines have been manufactured during the phase three trials. That never happens with a normal vaccine. 
the reason it happened is because Congress authorized uh, the federal government through health, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to buy vaccine and during to have these companies make the vaccine, manufacture it during phase three. And then if the phase three trials show that it's safe and effective, there's already an inventory ready to, to deploy a normal mm-hmm. vaccine. That would never happen because you'd wait for the end of phase three and then say, well, it was safe and effective. How much do you think we could get price wise for it? And then they decide whether and how much to make. And it could take until 2023. Normally, we're going to have vaccine by January because you and I, the taxpayers of the United States, paid for a vaccine before we knew that it was safe and effective. The evaluation by the FDA is going to determine of that phase three data is going to determine whether it's safe and effective. And we won't have to wait to deploy it to the high risk populations. So those are all really good things. Um, but if we let fatigue get to us now and ease up before the vac- weeks even before the vaccine is available, just think about, you know, we'll have sacrificed so many weeks and months only to give up just as the vaccine is about ready to get deployed. Mm. So ending our conversation on a message of hope, there is light at the end of the tunnel. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Will. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks. Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc. The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara Lamontine, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support.